Before we jump into our teaching time together this morning, I want to pause and just take an opportunity to address a situation that happened in the life of our church last week. And I want to take this opportunity to reflect to you how this actually uh, highlights the way in which we go about living out our values here at Jericho Ridge. So last weekend, uh, following our gathering, we had the first of our information sessions outlining the Rise Up Pledge campaign. And how many of you were there, just as a, a show of hands, just to go, okay. So for those of you who were not there, you might need to get some context for uh, someone who was there. I want to thank you for attending. Um, if you weren't there, you're just going to have to bear with me for a minute, and you'll have to piece some of the, the pieces together as you process it here. So in that meeting, a discussion uh, arose about the, not only surrounding the finances, but other aspects of the health of Jericho Ridge as a church. So some of that context of that discussion was fairly intense. And uh, I think some people left that meeting uh, f with a variety of different emotions and feelings. Some were happy uh, that a productive conversation had started in their thinking. Some were very mad. Some were confused. And some felt that it was a good meeting. Others were angry at the tone or the content uh, or the context in which some of the uh, people chose to express their concerns. So I want to just reflect on that a little bit for a few minutes and uh, remind everybody that passionate discourse can be very healthy, but it also has a potential to be divisive if it's not handled well. And there were a lot of people that shared their point of view and their, their perspectives, and a lot of the content revolved around some concerns that were first expressed uh, by Danny, who was the first speaker uh, to the microphone. So Danny has been scheduled to speak on this date and to be part of the teaching rotation for our Book of James study for a long time. And so I wanted to make sure that we addressed any points of potential conflict uh, and contention before carrying on. So I want to say a couple of things. The first thing that I want to say is that Danny raised a number of questions that our elders team has been wrestling with and actively asking this past year. And so as we've been working through that process, we've invested a lot of time in praying and seeking God uh, for a vision for Jericho Ridge for this coming season in the life of this church community. And so we're excited that as we've done a lot of thinking and praying about it, that this plan addresses a lot of those concerns that were raised. Now, a great venue for discussion about that is going to be on November the 16th when we gather together for our vision night and talk about the future. So you might want to put that on your calendar. And one of the things to me that's exciting about this is that this conversation is igniting people's passion about the church and about the health of the church. Uh, however, the purpose of the information sessions was to focus on one particular aspect, and that is to figure out what ministry plan and what priorities we're going to be able to fund going into 2015 and what gap we're going to be able to close in some of our shortfall uh, for 2014. It wasn't a venue particularly for kinds of hurts or barriers of past engagement uh, to be expressed. And so there are ways to go about doing that. And so I want to just speak for a second about those who raise particular areas of concern or specific ideas. And I want to let you know that communication has been initiated uh, and with face-to-face -face with each of those individuals to clarify their perspectives and to respond in healthy and appropriate ways. So I think the way that I think about this is from time to time in any family, even if you are the most well-adjusted family on the planet, that uh, there will be moments of conflict and tension, and those will bubble to the surface when there's differences of opinion and perspective on things. And so we should expect that even the most well-adjusted families have tension and difficulties uh, sometimes expressing opinion or hearing opinions expressed. But the important thing about that in the life of a faith community is not unanimity, not that everybody thinks the same way about everything. The important thing about that is unity. And unity is predicated upon how each of us handles ourselves in moments of conflict and tension. And so each of us have choices to make that can propel Jericho towards continued unity or towards division. And so I want to remind everybody that you have two areas that are not your best friends in when the emotion 
is heated and when differences of opinion are running, uh, are circulating, and that is texts and email. Those are not your best friends in moments of conflict. Face-to-face -face interaction and engagement is. So this past week, Danny and I were in contact with each other shortly after uh, Sunday, and we arranged to meet to sort out the intention of his comments and to move forward in mutual understanding. So I expressed my feelings and how I had experienced the time, and we moved uh, quickly, I think, towards mutual understanding and reconciliation. And I think one of the things that, that Danny and I talked about, and Danny admitted freely, was that the way in which he, the passion that he expressed his concerns may have overshadowed what he was trying to communicate. And so this may have caused some tension between some of you and Danny. And so I just want to name that, but I also want to take us back to the scriptures and the process that we have around forgiveness, and that is that if you uh, have anything that you feel that you need to process with somebody, that you feel you need to address with Danny or anyone else in the church family, then in a spirit of unity and peace being your guiding attitude, Matthew 18 says you go to that person. You don't go to another person and talk about that person. You go directly to that person and you seek to be reconciled with them. And you go in private as well. So from my personal perspective, uh, my desire is to keep short accounts with people. And so I'm grateful both to the Lord and Danny that he and I have a longstanding relationship that can handle that level of interaction, and we can sit with each other, we can express things, and then we can move to the place uh, where we're able to share our feelings and experiences and experience full reconciliation. And I want to acknowledge that maybe some of you have not had an opportunity or been reminded to do that yet. Uh, either with, I'm not isolating Danny, there may be other people that, that express things that you need to approach them on. Uh, and so it may take time for you to reach a point of reconciliation, but this is the hope that we have uh, for everyone and what the leadership team here is calling you to and what the scriptures call us to as well. And so I recognize that for some of you, if you have not yet reached that point, that it might be a little bit of a challenge for you to hear Danny preach uh, just a week later. But if you approach the other person in the spirit of humility and reconciliation, if you feel that the matter is not resolved interpersonally between you, then Matthew 18 continues to talk about how then it would be appropriate to involve another person uh, and bring it to the attention of someone in the leadership of the church. And so our pastoral staff and our elders are here to listen, and we're here to help you live out the values of the kingdom. But if you come and talk to us about an issue that you have with someone else in this church, we will direct you to talk to them. And we will ask you, have you spoken with them directly about your concerns yet? And so I'm going to invite Danny up uh, to preach and to share. And I want uh, you guys all to know that I love this guy to his core. He really ticks me off sometimes. But that's life, and that's living together in a family. Um, I think without Danny in my life and without Danny as a part of this church community, I would feel impoverished because I know Danny's heart and I love his heart. I know his love for the church and I know that it would be quite easy for him to have given up on the church a long time ago, uh, but I value that. And even though he sometimes drives me crazy, uh, I think Danny, I know Danny helps me to be a better neighbor. He helps me be a better disciple. He helps me to be a better father and husband and a better friend. And so I'm going to pray for him as he preaches. And then I'm going to head down and teach fuel because if there is one unresolved issue we have in the life of the church, it's that we don't have teachers for kids of the rich. So I'm going to jump into that. All right? So I'm going to pray for you, Danny, as you preach. God, we are uh, grateful for the way in which you continue uh, to be the one that's in charge of your church. It's your church. Uh, Jericho Ridge is your church. And so we publicly affirm and declare our dependence on you yet again, God. I want to thank you for the way in which you continue to lead and to guide your church and the way in which you use all of us as human beings, fallen and broken and muddled up as we all are. You use us, Father to advance your purposes in the world. And we want to commit ourselves to that. We want to commit ourselves to each other.
in fresh ways. We want to commit ourselves to being a community of reconciliation and peace. We want to be uh, people who are reconciled uh, to each other and then who are able to model that for a world who's suffering and is broken and is not reconciled with you or with other people. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would uh, use Danny now as he teaches. Thank you for the things that you have taught and continue to teach him. And, Father, I pray uh, that you would continue to teach each and every one of us here in your church uh, the ways in which you want us to engage with you and with each other. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. That was a little, that was a little awkward. Um, as I was growing up in my life, there was, a, there was a point in time when I realized that I was living two lives. Uh, there was a life I lived at church amongst my church friends, and then the, lives I live, the life I lived amongst other people. And it was reflected in my language, in my attitude, and in uh, just the way I carried myself. And uh, I remember the encounter I had with God in that time. It was really difficult. Um, but I made a promise to him that I would be honest all the time. So the Danny that you see on Sunday morning is going to be the same guy that you see on Friday afternoon. And um, <clears throat> I get, often when I speak here, the, the feedback that I get is really appreciate your honesty. Okay? So then that honesty is just going to come out all the time. And that means that there's going to be times when you really, really like what I have to say. And there's going to be times when you really, really probably don't like what I have to say. But I hope that I've communicated enough every time that I've spoken that if you ever have any kind of issue with me whatsoever, that I am not scared of having a conversation around that. So please come and talk with me about what it is that I say and what I do. And then I also want to encourage you that if you have issues and concerns about the church, like I do, that you would direct those to the leadership of the church, to the pastors and the elders, and that's what I will encourage you guys to do. Okay? Um, I was actually going to sing you a song, but without musical instruments, I'm not going to attempt that. Um, it's a song that kind of captures my life, and I've carried this song around with me for a long time. It's called Man of God by Audio Adrenaline. I'll just read you the lyrics here. Uh, it says, sometimes I'm a liar, sometimes I'm a fake, sometimes I'm a hypocrite that everybody hates, sometimes I'm a poet, sometimes I'm a preacher, sometimes I watch life go by sitting on the bleachers, but I've never been left alone in any problem that I've known, even though I'm to blame. There were times when things were dark and I've been known to miss the mark, but someone fixed my aim. Sometimes I'm a man of God, sometimes I'm all right. Sometimes I lay down, close my eyes, and pray to God. Sometimes I don't feel good. It's hard to start the day. It's hard to climb the obstacles that sometimes come my way. If I make it, I'm a good man. Am I a bad man if I fail? I know I am never good enough, so I let grace prevail. But I've never been left alone in any problem that I've known, even though I'm to blame. There were times when things were dark, and I've been known to miss the mark. Someone fix my aim. Oh, what you see is what you get. It's not me. I hope you don't see me. And if you see me, come and talk with me about it. But I hope that you can come to see God through me. Just crazy the passage that I got here today. <clears throat> Has to do exactly with that. And so I've kind of been like cursing under my breath that I have to come up here and speak. It would just be way easier to ignore this and not be up here. I'm talking about James. Continuing the series in the book of James, this passage I got like months ago. I think that the fact that James exists actually does more to prove the claims of Jesus than any other book in the world. And it's not because it says things so differently, uh, but because of who wrote it. And there are many people that have the same name in the Bible, so sometimes it's just not all that clear who's the one that's talking. I mean, there was the James, 
one of the three closest disciples to Jesus. Uh, Peter, James, and John, right? These are the guys that were always together. James and John were brothers. They got nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. They were famous. But by the time that this book was written, that James had actually been killed. It can't be him. Jesus had another disciple named James as well. We often forget him because really the only thing the Bible says about him was that he was a son of Alphaeus. So it's not him. Then there, uh, just to thoroughly confuse us, the name of the book refers to neither one of these guys. There's a third James. And the name, um, he was a head leader of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, which you can imagine would be a fairly major gig, right? So they must have trusted him a ton, even though he wasn't one of the original disciples. And the reason that they trusted him should be the same reason that we should trust him. And that's because this James was the younger half-brother of Jesus himself. And if someone can be convinced that their own brother is God, then that is a miracle in and of itself. Uh, James is actually also considered to be one of the oldest books in the New Testament, which means it was really the first writing that was circulating amongst the, the network of Christians at that time. So I find it really interesting to see what it was that those first church leaders were worried about and what it was that they wanted to address with the people and how much we still struggle with the same things. 2,000 years later, and like James is one of my favorite books because it's direct to the point and practical in application, exactly how I say I try to live my life. Every, not, not every church leader through history has liked the book. Uh, Martin Luther, who was uh, one of the central figures in the Protestant Reformation, had very negative things to say about the book, um, and they're kind of centralized in the section that we're going to be going through today. Uh, I would encourage you to look it up, Martin Luther and James, on Google, and you can see the things that he said. Um, I want you to pull out a Bible or get it out on your phone, whatever. This is really more of a Bible study this morning than it is me preaching, and I just want to kind of guide you through some of the stuff I've been learning. So it's James 1, 19 through 27. James is towards the back of the Bible. There's only like this much space. There's James. There's a big book called Hebrews. If you run into that, it's just to the right. So while you're looking for that, I'm just going to pray. Uh, God, I just thank you for being bigger than me. I thank you that you, uh, you're in control and I'm not. And I just ask that you would move here this morning to have your spirit be the one that speaks. And you can use my voice if you like. Uh, Get rid of those things that may cause hindrances for me or for others and help us to be attuned to who, what you're doing here this morning. Amen. James 1, 19 through 27. So let's look here and see what could create such a buzz through church history. It starts off, my dear brothers, and some translations add sisters there as well, though that's not in the original. The point is that it's applicable to everyone and not merely the brothers in the audience today, if there are any. Uh, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Can you see why I didn't want to talk about this this morning? Hey. The fact that this is addressed to everyone is significant. It isn't just Christians that should act this way. It isn't just community leaders or soccer moms. It's a bit of universal truth. It's common sense. Uh, it's guided me through a lot of tough situations and has popped up in my head more than once this week. Uh, I don't remember a whole lot about my grandpa who died when I was young, but I do remember him quoting this verse quite often, and it stuck with me. Uh, but there was actually a Greek philosopher that lived during that time as well that had a very similar phrase floating around. Um, his name was Dio Chrysostom. I'm not very good with the Greek name. Anyway, this is what he said. He said, for my part, I should prefer to praise you for being slow to speak, and even more that you are self-controlled enough to keep silent. So I like this. I like that a church leader is giving some super simple, common sense advice about how to deal with each other. Sometimes the things that we hear in church can seem so lofty 
even though they sound good, they're so lofty that we feel like only spiritual gurus can really accomplish them. The difference between Dio and James is that James gives us some reasoning as to why this common sense advice should be applied, and that's next. He says, because man's anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Another way to translate this would be to replace the word man with the word human, and that way the ladies here can't make a cause that female anger is somehow more righteous than men's. Although in my house, I think that my wife's anger is always more justified than my own, so maybe there is something to that. Uh, a more important question, though, is the kind of, what is the kind of righteousness that God desires? And the really, really simple answer is the kind that is not angry. So, sometimes we refer to something called righteous anger, and that's being angry about something that's really important. For instance, we could feel justified in being angry about a social justice issue, such as the work that I do personally with uh, young people being sexually exploited and recruited into the sex trade. The question is, though, who am I angry at? Who am I directing that anger toward? I mean, it could be natural to be angry at those who exploit and abuse children in such a way and to consider them enemies of mine. Like, after all, we're trying to reach the same demographic of the population, but they're doing so for evil intentions, and I'm doing them for good intentions. At least I'm trying to. And part of my job is actually to educate kids to know the difference between someone who's trying to recruit them into something evil and someone who's trying to come into their life to build good. However, with all this idea of enemies, Jesus pretty famously said that we're supposed to love our enemies. And the problem with that is the more I love someone, the less they feel like my enemy. And the harder it is for me to be angry. And I'll fully admit this is difficult to do. It's really messy. I'd like to ignore it. I'd like to sit in my righteous anger. But it's something that is central to the teaching of Jesus. And as I've taken this to heart, I find my reaction towards these enemies is feeling really sad for them, that they're so lost that they can't see the truth and they can't see the value and the important things in life anymore. That they need this peace teaching of Jesus more than anyone. I'm not actually convinced that there is a healthy way to express righteous anger or if it's just a distraction from loving each other better. We may ask, doesn't God get angry? We could say that being angry isn't part of who God is, but that wouldn't be consistent with the picture that we see of God many times in the Old Testament. God does get angry, and many times I'm super uncomfortable with how it looks when God's anger seems to be demonstrating itself. April told me this week when she was doing her Bible study that sometimes she feels like God is bipolar. And it's a huge stumbling block for us and for people who are trying to explore out this whole God stuff. It's something I still struggle with from time to time as I read through certain sections of Scripture. However, James does say here that it's human anger that it's, that's at fault, not the anger of God. Our anger is faulty and can't produce righteousness. God's anger is different than ours. It's nearly impossible to wrap our heads around this concept because we only really have our experience with anger to compare with. And because our anger usually just produces useless stuff, that we can't see how God's anger may be different than ours. And this is one of those areas where I just have to trust that the consistency of God's character, those things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control are somehow compatible with his anger. We could stop on this for a really long time. But we may just have to come to a place of understanding that we don't have a full picture, that we have to be content in this mystery. Leave anger to God. If it can be righteous, then only he can do it. Our instructions on anger are consistent in the New Testament is simply to get over it. 
So, our human anger doesn't produce what God wants for us. Therefore, James continues, get rid of all moral filth and the evil so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Again, this is an interesting conversation to be observing coming from a church leader in the first century. It would seem that people that are so close to the events of Jesus' life that they would be overcome with good and amazing things so much that they wouldn't struggle with the same things that we do. We often think that we are living in the evilest of days, that our generation is dealing with greatest evils ever, when in fact it sounds like it's all about the same. The specifics may be different, but the heart issues are the same. That's one, that's one way to take it. Another way is to look like here's just another religious leader going off on a rant about all the things that we should and shouldn't do. And it seems like all religious leaders ever talk about is morality, these lists of do's and don'ts. Church, to me, when I was growing up, seemed like the place that was either telling me all the things that I shouldn't do, that I wanted to, or all the things that I should do that I didn't want to. That didn't seem like the freedom that Jesus talks about. And here James doesn't give us a big list like some of the other places in the Bible. Instead, he's reminding us to get rid of the things that get in the way of, the, of that freedom. Like we said, anger can seem like a righteous thing, but really it's just an example of the filth that's piling up on our lives. And there's other examples, but rather than get obsessed about the lists of what's right and wrong, James flips it on its head, and he says, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Don't obsess about these lists of rules of do's and don'ts, but look at what is God telling you inside. Instead of getting angry about whatever exterior issues are happening, we're supposed to humbly accept the word planted internally within us. It's not about adding limitations to us, but about removing limitations from us. (laughs) But then I wondered what the word was and how it got planted in me and how I was supposed to accept it. So as Western believers, influenced by years and years of evangelical theology, we interpret the word to mean the Bible. And pastors will pound their Bibles and remind us that we've got to get back to the Word of God. Martin Luther, as part of his thesis that started the whole Reformation movement, listed the concept of sola scriptura as one of his primary teaching points. And it's simple Latin for scripture alone, being the gatekeeper of all theology. Of course, if we're going to accept the idea, we have to realize that James' understanding of Scripture would have been limited to the Old Testament, as the New Testament did not exist at this point. After all, he was the first church leader that had actually taken the time to write. Jesus had enough interactions with religious leaders who had absorbed the Old Testament but missed the point, and I can't believe that James would be calling the early church to go back to that model. But even if he did mean scripture, how are we supposed to interpret the internalization of it? I think we can safely assume that James understood this beyond a literal sense. Of course, you can't literally plant the Bible inside you, opening up your chest cavity and putting in paper, ink, and leather. It's not advised. Though it does actually sound like the basis of some kind of reality TV show. He must have been referring to something broader. He's talking about an absorption of some sort, which could have meant simple memorization. Um, But there's a few other options. It could be referring to a particular teaching of the church. We call thoughts presented by spiritual leaders as being theology. The word theology comes from two Greek words. Theos, meaning God, and logos, meaning word. So it's literally translated as word of God. In other words, he could be telling us that instead of living based on our impulses, we should accept the teaching of the church. This makes a bit of sense until we remember that this is the concept that Jesus had the most arguments about with the religious leaders. That the, the teachers of the law were somehow using religious law as a way of exhorting control and power over people. In fact, he had a lot more leniency on people that were considered sinners of his day 
than he did on those who were literally following the exact requirements of the law. So if it's not scripture James is referring to, and it's not the teaching of the church, then what other options are there? A third option would be that James is alluding to the same philosophical teaching that's presented in the book of John, which refers to Jesus as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This kind of language makes sense to us as well, because we've heard it so many times. And in the past, the church was pretty famous at telling people that they had to ask Jesus to come into their heart. That would be how someone would know that they were in fact a Christian convert. However, James is one of the first to write, while John was one of the last. So it would have been hard to borrow from something that hadn't been written yet. Not that they couldn't have talked about it before it was written, but because it wouldn't have been widely understood at the beginning stages of the church when James was writing. He wouldn't have wanted his readers to misunderstand what it was that he was trying to communicate. Those readers being mostly Jewish at this stage in church history would not have been prone to think James is referring to a Greek philosophy. So if it's not scripture, if it's not the teaching of the church, if it's not the philosophical representation of Jesus, then what was James referring to? And it could come to rest on the facts James understood the transformational moment that they were living in. That this was a time in which God was carrying out the promise that he had made that was moving people from a system of rules, which sought to manage people's beliefs and behaviors externally through the law, that's religion, and moving them to something new. In Jeremiah 31, 31, God speaks on this new plan. A time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is the new covenant, the new testament, the age in which we live now. And it's said to have come to pass on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down on Jesus' followers, and for the first time, they understood what it meant to have direct communication with God instead of having to participate in the Jewish religion to experience God. In some ways, it's easier to come in contact with God, but in another sense, it's harder than it's ever been because now it cannot be simply a system of rules. God himself takes up occupancy in our lives. And however, if our lives are occupied by moral filth, as James puts it, then there's no room for him. With this understanding of the word, it's not about a list of do and don't. It's about doing the right thing. It's about entering into an entire new way of living. Jesus talked about this as being born again, forgetting everything that you know and starting over. Of allowing the Holy Spirit to have access and control of our actions instead of simply trying to be merely disciplined enough to control ourselves into behaving the right way. Instead of making demands on us that we cannot achieve, the important truth here is that God is entering into a partnership with us. That through his grace, we no longer have to live in fear of God's anger burning against us. Instead, we merely have to make room for him in our lives. He's not merely a savior that is freeing us from the crap in our lives, but he is Lord, the master and commander of our lives. So why does this matter, what James meant about the word? Because if you don't understand the concept of the word being the entirety of God's presence, instead simply think about it as being the written word, you might not like the book of James. If taken literally, it would seem that James says that we are saved by the word. This is where Martin Luther had trouble with James, because he believed, and rightly so, that we can only be saved through faith, through a relationship with Jesus. Not through religious action, no matter how morally right it may be. I can understand why this was important to Luther, who saw how sinful actions were being justified into holy ones. The time in church history when he was communicating, 
the church was selling indulgences. And if you're not familiar with that, it basically meant that people could prepay for forgiveness for sins that they would be committing in the future to the church, which the church found very lucrative. If I want to have an affair on my wife, I just prepay for forgiveness, go and have the affair, and I'm already forgiven. Can you see some problems with that? But if I think if, if Luther could have seen the intent of James' work, that he would have been on board with the teaching as we're living it out and raising up against such practices at this time, he was doing exactly that. He knew people's actions had to match the faith they claimed to have. Not that the actions can save you in and of themselves, but they're evidence of the transformed life of the new covenant. See as James continues how that theme comes out. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it will be blessed in what he does. I've read this over a million times, and it's always confused me. Not because when I look in a mirror, I forget what I look like, but because most of the time when I look in a mirror, I use it to practice making faces. Not because I care about what I look like. And it's kind of weird. Like I feel like, in some sense, James is telling us to be narcissistic, like to sit there staring longingly at ourselves for hours. And sometimes that's a problem. We just stare in at ourselves for too long. But if we consider this full concept as the word, the full presence of God's existence in our life, as working as a mirror, how we should look, not as what we are. And we look in mirrors this way when we're actually getting ready for like a first date or a job interview. In order to prepare ourselves for these situations, we have to act on what we see. So I might look in the mirror and see that I have food stuck in my beard from eating nachos last night. I might have drool dried on my cheek. I may have gum stuck in my hair. All of those things require action in order to prepare me for the situations that I'm going to get into. James is not talking about falling in love with our own image. But he's talking, as he said, about looking closely enough to see the filth that we have on us and taking actions that are required to clean ourselves up and get us ready to go. Alexander Ross, in his commentary, applied this in a way that made a lot of sense to me. He said, The mirror of the Word of God never flatters. That is why some do not like to gaze too long or too often into it. The man who continues to look in the mirror of God's Word sees in it things far more wonderful than his own face. He sees not only his filthy garments, not only the spots and stains on his life, He sees in it Christ, the Christ of the thorn-crowned brow, the Christ of the cross, his Savior, whose blood cleanses him from all sin. The question isn't what should we do. The question is who are we trying to be? And instead of seeing ourselves looking into the mirror, it helps us to see what is blocking the world from seeing our true selves, from seeing God in us, not our superior moral choices, but our dependence on the Holy Spirit, which comes from the word planted within us, the new covenant, the very presence of God that is waiting to burst out, but it can't be seen because of the crap that we cover ourselves in. If we're not careful, we can go throughout our lives thinking that because we go to church every week, because we listen to praise music, because we write notes during the sermons, that we donate a certain amount to the Christian cause that we're saved. All those may be good things, but unless they come from the Spirit, then they're just religious practice. It's like a man that looks in a mirror and doesn't take action to prepare his life. He forgets what he really looks like and only sees the mask. It's called a hypocrisy gap, and I borrow it from politics and economics. It's a real thing. Look it up. There's a gap between what we know to be true and how we are living. The real power of changing our lives and changing the world has nothing to do with where we go to on a Sunday morning, what music we listen to, what dollar amount we're giving, but about the spiritual condition of our lives. 
It's not about being called to a higher moral calling. About our relation, it's about our relationship with Christ through the Holy Spirit. It's the difference between being a disciple of Christ and being a convert to Christianity. A convert is trying to increase his knowledge needed to be Christian. A disciple is trying to get to know Jesus better. A convert tries to figure out what actions are needed to be Christian. The disciple acts based on the reality of being changed by Jesus. We're not called to be converts. We're called to be disciples. We're not called to make converts. We're called to make disciples. For many of us, this hypocrisy gap between what we know and how we live actually continues to increase because we're thinking too much like converts and not enough like disciples. We continue to pour in sermon after sermon after sermon, teaching after teaching after teaching. We learn more and more and more, feel really good about ourselves, but now the gap has actually widened between what we know and how we're living. Instead, we need to wonder about how to close this hypocrisy gap in our lives. And James gives an example of this in his final words in chapter 1. He says, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the widows and orphans in their distress, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And notice about the subtle difference. It's not about knowledge. It's not about understanding. It's not about words. It's about the word. It's about action, and it's about discipleship. What is discipleship? Is a question that we shouldn't have to ask sitting in church week after week after week, but somehow, somehow it gets lost, and we forget what it is. The best word to describe what it meant in Jesus' time was to be an apprentice. Now, an apprentice spends his time learning from a master of the trade that they are wanting to pursue. There's some classroom work, but it's limited. And the real meat of apprenticeship is going out and doing the work. It's hands-on, and it's practical. In James' example here, it's simple. Shut up. Look for opportunities to live out your internal reality. And take a close, honest look at what cleaning you may do need to do to your face. When we start to do this, we start to simply live out the internal reality, then this hypocrisy gap closes. What an apprentice learns from the master is, look, I'm going to do it. Now I want you to try it. Nope, you didn't do it quite right. You need to try it again. Nope, one more time. Keep trying it. And it's the repetitive action that we learn these things so that they become instinctual and that we can actually teach them to other people. We need to react to the evils of the world, not in anger, but through motivation of making a new convert, new covenant of peace that we are experiencing, that is the promise of the New Testament, a reality in your life and in the lives of those around you who need a touch from God. In James' example, it was the widows and orphans. I don't know who the widows and orphans are in your life, but you need to look at where they are, and you need to reach out to them. Don't talk a lot. Just spend some time loving. The enemy would love to pollute us with the troubles and worries of the world, of possessions, of bank accounts, of status, of power, etc., 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 but we need to remember that the true reflection of our lives should be the spiritual reality of being connected to Jesus. And if anger is clouding that for you, even if you think it's righteous anger, you need to get rid of it and move on to the true purpose that God's calling you. If you're going to give, give out of a reflection of your heart, that internal word that's planted in you, not out of a requirement for your religion. We learn best when we immediately put things that we're learning into action. And this happens through the baptism of the Holy Spirit and through being his apprentice. 
And that means when he challenges you and when he convicts you, you need to act. A lot of us might say, but I never hear from God in that way. And it's because we've ignored him for so long that we can't recognize his voice. It's hard to take a stand for things when we're worried about what may happen, but he's told us not to worry. We just need to simply react in love. We need to put these things into action through being discipled, through joining with someone as they're acting out their convictions. So I have several mentors in my life who are discipling me into acting like a better father, acting like a better husband, giving me tools that I need to put my faith into action in those ways, let alone being a good Christian missionary, which I've been called to do even from this church. I need to go out and do it on a consistent basis. I need to be discipled. We can learn to put these things into immediate action when we're learning to disciple someone else. Because we can learn best when we're preparing ourselves to teach other people. I'll never forget moving into a situation where I was working with a group of teenagers that I'd worked with for years, and I was just trying to show them to the love of Jesus in my way. And then someone else, and the new co-worker came along with me, and he started asking some really direct spiritual questions that made me really uncomfortable. But in this case, he was discipling me. And I had less fear because I could see what it was that he was trying to do and how we could work together for the good of trying to disciple these kids in their lives. And you know what? People in this world need to know what it looks like for someone to be following Jesus, and you need to be an example of that to them. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And we need to make that same kind of claim to other people who aren't as far on the journey as we are. I just want to pray now. I want to pray for a blessing of the Holy Spirit to fall upon you, just like you did at Pentecost. And maybe you've been living your life as a Christian convert, and you need to scrap all of that, start over, and just concentrate on getting to know Jesus better and following in his footsteps. Just ask that you would open up your heart to him now. A very symbolic but practical way of doing this is to think about the things in your life, the moral filth, the anger, the rage, the lust, the quest for power and control. You take those things with your hands. Think about clutching those things in your hands. Maybe you can picture them. And this is the action I want you to take if you're ready to make this step. Open up your hands and drop those things before the foot of the cross. They're not going to help you pursue the life of righteousness that God is calling you. So I'm going to pray through that. Then after, I would challenge you to flip your hands open and up and through this action that you are allowing Jesus through the Holy Spirit to come in a more full and complete way into your life and you're receiving the gifts that he wants to put there, the things that he wants you to act on, the challenges, the convictions, the things you need to hear to be a better disciple. Father God, we're messed up. We make a lot of mistakes. I know for myself, even in this week, of trying to prepare and come up here and speak, is that the weaknesses that I have, and the, the difficult things that I struggle with, that I can excuse away as just being a part of my personality, have risen to the surface. And I confess they're not of you. I've been holding on to some of these things so tightly that I've replaced you with an obsession to do right and wrong instead of just listening for your voice. I release these things 
into your hands. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move in the lives and the hearts of the people that are gathered here this morning. I ask that the wind of your spirit would rush in and fill this place, that people would be actually able to feel your presence with them this morning, that it would be bubbling up inside them, that they would not be able to contain it. It would be as if there was a tongue of fire on top of their head. And so we flip our hands open to you and ask that you would just fall upon us, fill us up, help us to move. I pray that the people here would be able to hear your voice in such a way that they would move into action immediately. That when they see a need or if they hear a story of brokenness, that they would be willing to listen and extend the same grace to others that they want for themselves. Jesus, we cannot do this without you. And if we try, then I quit. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I can't wait to be fully with you and give up on the crap of this life But while I'm here, let it be useful and let me be able to be a light to the world around me, to my fellow brothers and sisters that sometimes need to call me out on accountability and sometimes need to challenge me so that I can be a better reflection of who you are to the world around me and to the people outside of this building right now that have no idea who you really are. And they only have is the concepts that are presented on TV and media and really bad church experiences that we can be a place to turn those things around. That through our lives, they may be able to see you just a little bit better. Help us to hear your voice. Help us receive your spirit here this morning. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Live out the new covenant as his disciples. Amen.